Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I sleep on a futon. I've been using the same Brita for three years. My roommate is a basis. You tell corporate I'm not putting apple slices on my menu. What's next? No more chicken beaks in the everything? I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And from WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. This week, Jessie Klein, head writer for the sketch show Inside Amy Schumer, tells us her nerd origin story. I would not be interested in any way in meeting Brad Pitt, but meeting Paul Poundstone <laughs> was such a big deal. And what it was like to have a sketch from the show go viral with a beautiful, beautiful mockery of Aaron Sorkin. I wrote to you. The letters came back. Where have you been? I worked my way up to being a GM of Asparo in Tel Aviv. Then one day I'm stuffing couscous into a calzone and I realized a woman's life is worth nothing unless she's making a great man greater. Plus our take on the new HBO show, The Leftovers, and your nerd confessions. So I eventually became known as the girl who reads all the time. Right here on Nerdette. Butterfly in the sky, I can go twice as high. Take a look, it's in a book, a reading rainbow. I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. This week on Nerdette, we talk with Jesse Klein. Some of you super NPR nerds may know Jesse as a frequent panelist on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. But she also just got an Emmy nomination for her work on Inside Amy Schumer. You have willingly accepted the title of geek. One thing we like to ask people is just to sort of tell us their nerd origin stories, how they became the beautiful nerds they are. <laughs> yeah, the gazelle-like nerd that <laughs> prances before you today. I grew up, I would say, in a like kind of odd household and odd in a way that is really almost indescribable. Like it's not like any other kind of odd. Like my parents, who I love very much, they're just these like weird little Jewish wolves <laughs> who like don't like go out very much. My mom, they're both retired now. She was a teacher and he's a probation officer. But my dad was like also very into literature and writing. He writes poems. He's a poet. But then by day, he's a probation officer. He's like an Orange is the New Black character. Yes. Oh, my God. Totally. My dad is like a male Natasha Leone. <laughs> but it was just weird because it was like me and my two siblings. And we grew up in New York City in a very, very small space. And it just turned into this kind of like weird, more busted looking like J.D. Salinger type family. <laughs> Even though we were all in this very tight space together, in a weird way, we weren't always that close because we were just trying to be in our own internal minds and like creating our own world in a very small space. So I got very into watching comedy pretty early on. Like the first thing I ever nerded out about comedy wise was the Marx Brothers. Like I was oh my a God, huge yes. Marx Brothers fan. Me too. Um like, I dressed as Groucho for Halloween when, like, everyone around me was 
just starting to be like a slutty cat or whatever. Jesse, so, I dressed as Harpo. We could have gone together. You dressed as Harpo? I was Harpo in eighth grade for Halloween. Oh, my God. Wait a minute. Get on a plane and come <laughs> to my house right now. Why are you where you are? I was very into that stuff. I was very neurotic, and I became like a hypochondriac very early. I was always thinking I was dying of something. And then I remember one summer, I had like a pain in my stomach, which I'll skip ahead. This all turned out to be nothing. There was literally nothing wrong with me, but I was really depressed about it. And I wouldn't go hang out with my friends because I was so depressed. Mm. And instead, I would just like watch stand-up comedy. Um, It was not Comedy Central then. I think it was still called Ha or the Comedy Channel or the other. And all they did was just stand-up all day. And so I would just watch a lot of stand-up, tons and tons and tons, trying to, like, laugh and feel better about the fact that I was dying of a disease that I didn't actually have. My other early, very nerdy interest, I was really into The Black Stallion. Anyone? (laughs) I remember that book, right? Are we talking about the book? We're not talking about just one book. We're talking about all the books. Okay, I'm just making sure that it wasn't a band that was too cool for me to know about. (laughs) not hanging out in like Greenpoint watching this cool band called The Black Stallion. But the thing about The Black Stallion is there's one book that's the first book. And some people have read that book, but most people have not read all like 30 books. They're all offshoots. I was so insanely into that to this day. Actually, one of the first things that my husband ever gave me, my first birthday that we were together We'd only been dating for about two months when it was my birthday, and he had remembered on an early date that I'd mentioned my obsession with the Black Stallion, and he bought me two Black Stallion mugs, oh. <laughs> um, which is why we're together to this day. No other reasons. Who were some of those stand-ups you were watching on Ha or the Comedy Channel? You know, the Marx Brothers obviously is a very specific kind of humor, but it's less accessible. You're like, well, it would take a lot of people to make a movie, but maybe I could right, do this right. thing. Yes. I mean, I remember really being into Paula Poundstone, who now that I do Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and she's on, like the first time I did that with her, I I would not be interested in any way in meeting Brad Pitt, but meeting Paula Poundstone <laughs> like was such a big deal. I just always thought she was so funny. And she, I mean, she's amazing. So I watched a lot of Paula Poundstone. I remember watching Mark Marin. There was a show called The A-List, and there was a show called Stand Up, Stand Up. I remember watching Elaine Boozler. I think Elaine Boozler was really funny. And then I also was obsessed with SNL. And so that was like a thing really early on, kind of like everybody else, I guess, who's into comedy. I remember very clearly the first time I watched David Letterman, and my parents never let me stay up late, and I didn't even know David Letterman existed. And then somehow I walked into their room and Letterman was on, and maybe I was like 10 years old. I remember the feeling of just like, oh, this is like everything I've ever wanted to experience and watch in my whole life. I just love (laughs) David Letterman so much. I developed a very big crush on David Letterman and had like a very elaborate fantasy of meeting him and us getting married. (laughs) I was like always into Chris Rock. I remember I became aware of Louis C.K. like long before he became like the thing. Oh, and Janine Garofalo, I like loved. I love Janine. Janine is awesome. What is it like now being the head writer for Inside Amy Schumer? I'm guessing that there's more women in that writer's room than the typical sketch writer's room. Um, you know, our writer's room has been pretty much 50-50 the entire time. And the entire time being just two seasons. We have a small staff. 
I mean, I think we would always want to try to have it evenly split. But when I worked on SNL, I guess there weren't that many female writers, but it wasn't like there were none. I can't speak to, like, late-night variety writing. That always seems much more male. See, this is the whole point, everyone. Feminism is not about taking things from men. It's just about sharing. Sharing. Just sharing and caring. There's a lot of Game of Thrones references on Parks and Recreation, and I think it's been said in a few different places that that's because all of their writers are a little obsessed with Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. So they made the characters obsessed with Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. And I, I wonder if there's a similar origin story to the food room sketch. <laughs> um, that's so funny. I mean, first of all, I will say that when that sketch was pitched, and it was pitched by one of our writers who's an incredibly funny writer and also an incredibly funny performer named Jeremy Byler. I'm going to out myself. I never watched The West Wing. I tried to watch it. And when I say tried, I'll be fair. I watched maybe 10 minutes of it. And I just was not into it. I was like, this is not my kind of TV. So I can't really speak to The West Wing. I, I may have like snap judged something that people clearly love. However, with the newsroom... <laughs> I started watching that show because I was like, all right, I can't be so behind on Sorkin. Everyone loves Sorkin. I'm going to, like, get in on this. I would watch it with my husband, and he was always kind of on the fence because he loved West Wing and wanted to give it the benefit of the doubt. And finally, I was like, dude, this is horrible. (laughs) And it somehow came up in the room. Once we started talking about it, everyone in the room is just like, oh, yeah, the hatred for the newsroom was intense. (laughs) And especially the thing with the female characters on that show. And it also pains me because Jeff Daniels is one of my favorite, favorite actors. And just having to watch him be like a puppet for all of like Aaron Sorkin's Monday morning quarterbacking (laughs) of events that happened like three years ago. It's all so on the nose and so pretentious. Everyone just immediately clicked into oh my God, this is so funny, let's do it. And then, especially once we started thinking like, oh God, maybe we could get Josh Charles to do it because Josh is a big comedy fan. And so when he got on board to do it, all of our heads exploded. But it did cross my mind. Is anyone else going to get this? Does anyone else share these feelings about this show? (laughs) I think we're in this environment now where a certain tiny subset of the culture can obsess over these HBO shows, but most people don't have HBO. We kind right, of forget that sometimes. Right, most people don't even have HBO. Although more and more people now probably have it like on their phone or whatever. But totally. we're like, you know what, we're going to do this because it makes <laughs> us happy and we feel like it needs to be said. And it went totally viral. It made us so insanely happy, I cannot tell you, because we just had no idea that we were tapping into something that so many people we're on board with. Um, and then, I mean, and then you know that Aaron Sorkin sort of like... He apologized for his he own like show. For his show. And I remember texting Amy and I was like, I think we just made Aaron Sorkin apologize for his HBO show. I don't know. Maybe he's secretly a delight. That was definitely a huge triumph. I'm not sure he's secretly a delight. I think he's I, wildly talented know. at you a very specific thing. You never know he's secretly a delight. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just because this is how I feel. And I like to assume that everyone else feels this way, too. But I think most people these days love to hate Sorkin. I think the reason the newsroom has the love hate that it does is that it takes all of the stuff that annoyed people about West Wing, but they put up with because they kind of liked living in this liberal political fantasy land for a while. Right, right. It's all of that 
Sorkinness without any of the warm, fuzzy feeling. It would be yeah. nice if Martin Sheen was president instead of yeah, the person yeah, who's yeah. currently there's president. No, none of the fantasy. The, yeah, there's no fantasy. It's just Jeff Daniels being super talented and poorly used. Yeah, it's like looking at the set of a porn right after they've finished making the porn, where it's just the <laughs> dirt and grossness of it without any of like the sexy stuff that happened right before. Were there particular lines that you guys liked about the food room sketch? Like, was there a favorite moment where you were, like, having your most Sorkin hate ecstasy? Oh, gosh, the on-the-nose part. When you said this about the role of women. A woman's life is worth nothing unless she's making a great man greater. Oh, my God. (laughs) We all just were so happy knowing that Aaron Sorkin saw it. That's kind of always the dream. And, yeah, it seems like he definitely saw it. (laughs) That's awesome. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Nerdette. We are talking with Jesse Klein, head writer of Inside Amy Schumer. Some of you super NPR nerds may know Jesse as a frequent panelist on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. It was always very important to me to do well in school, and I always got like very good grades. And so even though the show is not really in any way driven by getting anything right, it's still <laughs> very important to me to get it right. And I think the joy I feel at winning at that show, which, and no one cares, and there's no stakes, and there's no prize, but still, like for some reason, it activates this like former student in me. So I definitely cram the day of and the night before for wait, wait. You kind of have to be paying attention to like a very specific kind of news because you know the stories they're going to ask you about generally. They're not going to be the most depressing stories. They're not going to be stories where they're, like, really tragic, so, like, you can't talk about it because it's not funny at all. So you have to sort of know broad world news and politics, and then you also you also have to be aware of, like, those kinds of weird, like, human interest stories about, like... Every British study. Every, every British study, like, something crazy that a cat did in Poland. You have to kind of figure out, like, which news stories would be covered on this very family-friendly... NPR show. But you're a bit of a news junkie, or you were when I creepily read your blog in 2009. You were watching a lot of I'm CNN. Honestly, like, you could tell me you had naked photos of me, and I'd be less embarrassed than I am if I read my old blog. <laughs> that, was a blog that was a blog that I was writing when I lived in Los Angeles, and I was very single. I would work and come home, and I didn't do very much else. And I started writing this blog that I think if I were to look at it now, I would try to flush myself down the toilet. I couldn't even take it. (laughs) I spent a ton of time on the Internet. As a writer who pretends to write five hours a day, and of that five hours, there's maybe like 58 minutes of real work, and then the rest of it is just Internet. (laughs) So just being on the Internet all the time, I get like a lot of news, but I also see like that crazy dress Rihanna wore to that thing. Like, my head is filled with a lot of nonsense. <laughs> just tons and tons of nonsense. I just saw someone say that 
finding a happy relationship isn't about finding someone who's as perfect as you. It's about finding someone as terrible as you. Oh, my God. That's brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's so central to a lot of my takeaways from Inside Amy Schumer is that feminism isn't about making women seem better than men. It's about showing how awful they are and that that's okay because they're just people. Yeah. And it's so funny and refreshing to see that. So please keep doing that because it's Oh, awesome. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, we tried generally in the writer's room, everyone's just kind of pitching ideas that come out of their own experience and everything is very real. When this season premiered and people really started writing about what a feminist show it was, it made us super happy because I think everyone in that room, including the men, and I don't want to speak for anyone, but I believe that everyone thinks they're feminists, but we don't go into it trying to, like, write a some kind of strident, here's your lesson type of show, because <laughs> that wouldn't be very funny. But yeah, I think when you just write from the perspective of, this isn't just about me writing about this happened to me because I'm a woman, but just this happened to me. I think that's the best way. Can I just tell a quick <laughs> can I just tell a quick story? Sure. Something that happened to me yesterday, and I'm already trying to think of how to pitch it for season three. There's like a park near my house, and it was kind of nice out in the morning. And I went to go try to write just in the park. There's like a little area of picnic benches. And there were just a few random other people scattered around. And as I'm writing, these photographers start to show up and there's a model, like this beautiful 20-year-old skinny, gorgeous model. And so they're setting up, I guess, like a fashion shoot or whatever they're doing. But it seemed like far enough away from me. I wasn't paying attention. And then and then I had this like really awkward moment where the photographer came over to me and he was French and kind of hot. And he was like, excuse me. He's like, do you mind moving out of the way? <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, really? And there were other people sort of scattered around, but I was the only one that got asked to move so that I wouldn't be in the same shot as the beautiful angel creature that they were taking a photo of. Please, you will break um, the camera? Please, uh, excuse please me. Move. Um, you are a garbage person. Do you mind moving? I started laughing because it was so ridiculous, and yet I also did feel genuinely sad. <laughs> this is the hierarchy of life. That was the most Liz Lemon thing that's ever happened to anyone in real life. Maybe it was so Liz Lemon. I mean, it really felt like, oh my god, am I dreaming? Am I having a dream about an episode of Thirty Rock? That I saw? <laughs> or is this an experience I'm having? Jesse, one thing we like to do on Nerdette is ask people for homework for our listeners, because like you, we were those overambitious youths who ask for extra homework at school. So we were wondering what you would assign our listeners for homework. Peter Sagal told people to go running. Mary Roach told people to spit in their food and watch science happen. Right, right. It can be anything. Oh, The power is yours. Can you give out like more? Can you give extra homework? It's hard to pick just one yeah. homework. Oh, yeah. Do it. It can um, be a whole syllabi, man. A whole syllabi. Okay, so I just got an iPad mini, and it has, like, changed the way that I go to the gym. Now I can just watch TV on the iPad and somehow doing it at the gym. I'm just watching more TV than I've ever watched in my life on my iPad. So I just watched every episode of this HBO show, not written by Aaron Sorkin, but that I don't feel like anyone else watched called Getting On. Do you know about this? No. I think it's already been canceled. But it's this show, and I guess there were just like six episodes. I think it's based on a British show, and it's definitely a very dark show. It's like a long-term care wing at a hospital. So the subject matter is very dark, but 
Every single person on the show should have gotten an Emmy and an Oscar. They're incredible. Laurie Metcalf, Niecy Nash, and Alex Borstein are all in Getting On on HBO. This is such a beautifully written and acted show that is really dark, but also so funny. And I can't understand how all of these people did not get Emmys. Laurie Metcalf is doing something on this show that is so incredible. It's unbelievable. All right, that's homework one. Homework (laughs) two, have you guys seen Obvious Child? No, not yet. Okay. Obvious Child starring Jenny Slate. They're calling it an abortion rom-com. It's this indie movie that is in theaters now, and it is my new favorite movie. It's incredible. Jenny Slate is kind of like Gilda Radner come to life. It's so funny and so heartwarming, and it found a way to do a romantic comedy about a girl, and it's not about getting married, and she doesn't have a baby, and it's amazing. Obvious Child, you have to go see it. Excellent homework. One last homework. You also need to listen to Gabe Liedman's stand-up comedy album. Those are the three pieces of entertainment in the last few months that have, like, blown my mind. That's exactly what we want you to give us homework, so that's perfect. And then watch every episode of Inside Amy Schumer. Make sure you're all caught up for next year. It's so so good. I need to be in the same city as you for some Halloween at some point in our lives, and we're going to recreate our eighth grade Halloween costumes. Oh, my God. I want to wait. So what did you do? You just had the trench coat and the horns. Well, and I have crazy curly hair anyway, right, so right. I put on the trench coat and the thing, and, and I had a rubber chicken in one pocket and like a squeaky horn, or, or, or kind of, that was not the oh noise a horn makes at all. No, 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 that's, that was a horn noise, that was counted, it worked. We'll put a sound effect in over that, a horn, and then I was with a friend who was Groucho, and he didn't even really know about the Marx Brothers, I was like, this is what we're doing, and I painted a mustache <laughs> on him and put a hat on him and did the whole thing, and we went as Groucho and Harpo. And oh I didn't God, talk. I was in character so... the whole day. I didn't talk the whole day. I was going to say, so yeah, you didn't speak. <laughs> Have you ever read his autobiography? I haven't. I should. I should. Harpo Speaks. Your other piece of homework is to watch The Leftovers. This is the new HBO drama starring, among others, the ninth doctor, Christopher Eccleston. Yes, but when I say you need to watch The Leftovers, what I really mean is that you need to read The Leftovers and then listen to the Fresh Air interview with author Tom Parada and then watch The Leftovers. Okay, so this is multi-tiered homework from Greta this week. Exactly. But Trisha, you've been watching the show and you haven't read the book yet, so I'm especially curious of how you like it. What do you think so far? I'm going to keep giving it a shot, but I'm not head over heels in love with this show yet, which is often the case with the first couple of episodes of something that's this brooding and slow, that it's going to take a little time to just sort of lay out who all the characters are, what their relationships are. I've already been surprised by it several times, which is one of the things that will keep me watching is the fact that there has been a surprise element. Also, when the credits rolled and I saw Peter Berg's name, I realized, oh, this is why I enjoy how it looks and feels so much, because director of Friday Night Lights, has his hand in the making of The Leftovers, and it has that feel, and even a few of the familiar faces of Friday Night Lights. Buddy Garrity makes an appearance in the pilot, (laughs) which was fantastic. I think your choice of the word brooding is probably extremely accurate. I'm curious to see where the rest of the show goes. I am really glad that I have read the book just to sort of have that extra context about what's all happening. But I think probably my favorite thing about the book and the series so far, it's the story about how 2% of the population just sort of vanishes in the middle of the day, which in and of itself they captured really intensely in the pilot. But then the main family that they focus on, you know, this cop and his wife who has since left and then the kids, I find it really interesting that 
they were still a whole family. Like they didn't actually directly lose anyone in that situation, but it's still about how broken even they are in this really interesting way. But I get it. It's also really intense and pretty dark and weirdly violent, which I kind of wasn't expecting. Yeah, there's a lot of dogs dying in the pilot, which I get it. It worked well for House of Cards to do that. They ended up with a lot of award nominations Spoiler alert, there's a lot of dog killing. Greta, is there this much dog killing in the book? I read the book in December, and I'm pretty sure there is no dog killing. So it is really interesting to see there are definitely elements that they've added to kind of increase that intensity in this really visceral way. I was expecting it to be a little funnier, honestly, to have a little more dark humor in it. Even Breaking Bad, as intense as it was, always had some dark comedic moments Six Feet Under had brilliant dark comedy all woven throughout its episodes that were pretty much only about death on the surface. So this show that is about loss is going to have to find the funny, not the haha funny, but just the sort of weird, absurd moments that happen even in dark circumstances for the show to be something that keeps my attention. It's interesting that you say that because I was asking my mother if she thought the book originally was funny. And she said no, but I found it really funny. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. I could just have a really dark sense of humor. We'll see. We'll see. (laughs) But anyway, check it out. Try the book or just jump into the show. Whatever floats your boat, I guess. That's HBO's The Leftovers based on Tom Parada's novel of the same name. Eponymous novel. Okay. Now it's time to hear from you. That's right. It's time for Nerd Confessions. Hey, Greta and Trisha. I'm just calling with a nerd confession. So in middle school, my family moved from kind of a larger town to a smaller town. And in that smaller town, I went to dance lessons and always had to walk. It took probably about 15 to 20 minutes. I was an avid reader, so I was always reading and was very shy. And after moving, instead of maybe trying to find someone I could get a ride with or walk with, I just decided I was going to read as I walked to my dance lessons. So I would just walk down the streets reading whatever book I was involved in at the time. When I started school that fall, I would just read during lunch instead of trying to make friends. So I eventually became known as the girl who reads all the time. I eventually made friends, and it was fine, but for a very long time, it was just the girl who read, and that's my nerd confession. Okay, love the show. Bye. The girl who reads, I can totally relate to this. When we lived in Minnesota, when I was in elementary school, Trisha, my dad got tickets to the NCAA Women's Final Four. Basketball. We're talking about basketball, and I brought a book. (laughs) (laughs) And my dad was really totally cool with it which is super sweet. And I think he was really envisioning it as this like, look at all these women playing basketball, like Rebecca Lobo was out on the stage or on the stage. (laughs) Rebecca Lobo was out there. It was this very, you know, it was sort of like this girl power moment. But I was just sitting there reading Dealing with Dragons. It was amazing. (laughs) So I can totally relate to reading in places where you maybe shouldn't be reading. Find us at nerdatpodcast.com, talk with us on Twitter, at nerdatpodcast, and like us on Facebook. We also have a shiny new email newsletter. It's called Around the World Wide Web in 72 Hours. Last week, I sent out a reading list, which includes mystery novels by Robert Galbraith, who is really J.K. Rowling in secret, which seriously, guys, you need to go read these books right now. You can see Greta's summer reading list, part one of Infinity. Fair. And sign up for the Nerdat newsletter at nerdatpodcast.com. Just look on the left side of the homepage. Thanks again to Jesse Klein for joining us. The show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson. Joe Dassault is the fearless 
fearless leader of our podcast family. With help from Iris Lynn and Patrick Burns. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect nerds like you. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Thank you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Throw us some stars if you're feeling generous. Like the awesome Isawa Igora did on iTunes. Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tan Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.